welcome to the History of the Klondike Gold Rush, Episode 7, Chilkoot Trail or White Pass. I'm Keith Halliday. And I'm Pascal Halliday. Last time, we followed New York journalist Tappan Adney as he left his cushy office job in New York, traveled across the continent to Victoria, B.C., and set sail for Alaska with his newly purchased outfit, six horses, and two new trail partners. In this episode, we'll continue following Adney as he had to make the choice thousands of other stampeders had to make. Do I take the Chilkoot Trail to the Yukon interior or the White Pass? Adney, who is taking notes for his newspaper stories each night, ends up recording one of the classic quotes of the Klondike Gold Rush, taken from a man who had been on both trails. Quote, Whichever way you go, you'll wish you had gone the other. We should also warn you that at the end of this episode, there's a short section where we describe what happened to all the horses on the White Pass Trail. If you're listening with young children, you might want to skip it. We'll mention it again just before that section, so you can fast forward if you want. So let's get started. Before you could hit either trail, you had to get your outfit off the ship. This was not a trivial problem given that there is no dock big enough for a steamship. All the outfits will have to be taken to shore in small boats. By the time they get to Skagway and Dai, Adney and his shipmates on the SS Islander from Victoria have had several days to think, plan, and exchange what they've heard about the trails, whether fact or fiction, from some of the wilder newspaper stories and rumors circulating the West Coast. Half the men on his ship are American, and they're a random sample of society. A house builder, a business manager, a Boston contractor, and so on. One by one, the men go into their staterooms in their city clothes and emerge in their new Klondike outfits. The most picturesque figure appears in a full buckskin suit to the amusement of other stampeders wearing corduroy pants and Mackinac jackets. He's quickly dubbed Buckskin Joe by the passengers. The fact that his partner is a lawyer, around seven feet tall, adds to the effect. On board the ship, passengers spend the first day or two looking for lost boxes of cargo, feeding their horses, playing poker with a five-cent limit, or lounging on bales of hay watching the majestic coastal mountains go by. Then, once in American waters, a U.S. customs official who had just been in Skagway comes aboard. He explains the complicated customs rules. Everyone on the ship has bought their outfits in Canada and therefore do not have to pay duties when crossing back into Canada on their way to the Klondike. Their outfits are in bond and under seal, proof that they were purchased in Canada. However, while passing through Skagway, Dai, and the rest of the Alaskan Panhandle, that's the strip of U.S. territory along the coast, they face a dilemma. If they break the seals to get their tents and food while hiking the trail, they'll have to pay Canadian customs. If they don't, they'll have nothing to eat and will be sleeping outside. The U.S. customs official explains that they will be allowed to use their tents and blankets, but suggests they stop at Juneau and buy enough food to last them until they get to the Canadian border. Adney and his partners decide to buy three days' worth of hardtack, that's a kind of hard bread, tea, bacon, and sugar at Juneau, since they expect to be over the passes in that time. Remember that, just three days to get up and over the passes into Canada. The customs official also suggests the passengers organize a landing committee of 10 men who will set up a system for everyone's boxes to get taken to shore and once on the beach, sorted into piles for each man. He also talks about pilfering in Skagway and suggests they put up a rope to mark their perimeter and set a few men to watch the goods. He also says that importing whiskey into Alaska is prohibited, especially selling it to First Nations people. Buckskin Joe's partner jumps up at this point and says he and Buckskin Joe have a small flask each, just for medicinal purposes. 
the customs official replies that small amounts are okay, and, quote, it is not the intention of the law to examine a man's flask. Others ask what the penalty for theft is at Skagway. The answer? The miners, quote, give him 24 hours to leave, and if he doesn't leave, he's shot. All 160 passengers and their 109 horses plan to use the White Pass. Adney's notes say, quote, Although it seems incredible that an easier pass, which this is reported to be, exists so near the Dai or Chilkoot Trail, unquote. Incredible indeed. A businessman linked to the British Yukon Company, the company that cut the White Pass Trail and owned the Skagway town site, is on the ship. He says they spent $10,000 cutting the trail, mainly to support work on the planned railway. It's a private trail, but the objective is not to make money off the miners, although a small toll may be charged. They hope to improve the trail so the cost of packing, currently around 20 cents a pound, could be reduced. As Skagway and Dai approach, tension on the ship rises. Everyone had spoken to a sourdough or a merchant at Juneau and had new information on the situation at the passes. But there was a problem. Quote, No two stories agreed, save that all told one story of trouble and hardship past comprehension. Only one man was discovered who said the trail was all right. We came to the conclusion that either there are no liars, like those of Alaska, or that the people here are very ignorant. Everyone throws up his hands in disgust and says, we'll know what it's like when we get there and not before. On August 20th, the SS Islander anchored off Skagway and began to unload. Adney's partner and his two horses, who had proceeded on a different ship, had also just arrived. A city of tents stretched across the beach and onto the shore. Boats go back and forth to the ship, and men and horses scurry along the beach from one pile of goods to the next. No one has a second to look up at the magnificent mountain scenery. On our website, klondikegoldrush.org, you'll find a link on the episode page to photos of Skagway and Dai around this time from the University of Washington's collection. There are said to be 500 people in Skagway, and another 2,500 on the White Pass Trail. Three to four hotels are already going up, and a U.S. flag over a tent marks the location of what seems to be the only government official in town. Grim news awaits once everyone gets their outfits and horses ashore. Pessimists say the White Pass Trail is so bad that only one in ten will successfully get over. Optimists say that four in ten will make it over. One party rows past Adney's ship, saying the White Pass Trail is jammed and they are rowing to Dai to start on the Chilkoot. Adney interviews someone back in town from the White Pass Trail and asks about the problem. The reply, quote, It is the inexperience of those who are trying to go over. They come from desks and counters. They have never packed and are not even accustomed to hard labor, unquote. One party started with 10 horses, but lost four due to overloading. The trail is so treacherous that horses slip and break a leg and then have to be shot. That day, two horses fell into a swamp and drowned before their owners could untie their packs and get their heads free. Prices for packing are no longer 20 cents a pound, but have gone up to 35 cents a pound. A packer who can carry 75 to 100 pounds on his back and work 10 hours can make $7.5 a day. That's four or five times more than the average salary in the lower 48. Experienced horse packers are making $20 or more per day. There can be better ways to get rich in a gold rush than looking for gold. People are giving up and selling their outfits. Bacon and flour are selling for a fraction of their price in Seattle. Horses, on the other hand, are a different story. Newly arrived ones might be $200 versus $25 in Victoria. 
In a few days, they'll be worth $125 to $150. In four or five days, not much, and less than a dollar by the time they make it to the summit. Poorly managed horses regularly get spooked and rampage through the tents, dragging half-loaded wagons or poorly loaded boxes behind them. One man is asleep in his tent when a horse galloped through it and ripped it off its pegs and carried it completely away, leaving him alive but amazed. It becomes so common, Adney says, that most people just look up briefly to make sure the horse isn't stampeding in their direction and then get back to work. Every man is armed, all with revolvers and some with rifles. One man remarks, quote, There are more inexperienced men to the square foot than in any place I have ever been to, and more double-action revolvers. They ought to have left them at home. It would be a charity for Mr. Constantine, that's the head of the mounted police at Dawson, to take them all away, for they will be shooting themselves. There are already saloons along the muddy trail known as Broadway, which even today is the main street of Skagway. They have evocative names, the Pack Train, the Bonanza, the Grotto, and the Nugget and are somehow openly selling watered-down whiskey and beer in direct contravention of the supposed ban. These saloons are just tents, with a board or two across some boxes for a bar, and gambling tables surrounded by men. One has somehow acquired a piano, whose arrival in town was a big event, although Adney says the dances held around the piano were sad affairs. Most men were either too busy or too exhausted to dance. Adney is surprised by the number of women in town, mostly married to Stampeders. They dress in short skirts with leather leggings or even men's trousers. There's one child in town. Stampeders are building all kinds of contraptions to get their outfits the roughly four miles from town to what is called the foot of the trail. One veteran tells Adney that, quote, The road is good for four or five miles. It's a regular cinch. After that, hell begins, unquote. There are little handheld wagons, narrow two-wheeled buggies pulled by horses, or even bicycles adapted to carry 200 pounds of gear while being pushed. Adney decides to go ahead on a reconnaissance for a couple of days and check out the White Pass Trail. He finds the trail is indeed good up to the base of the hill. After that, it starts to rise steeply, winding through large boulders the size of a tent interspersed with smaller rocks, moss, and swamp. Anyone who has hiked on the Alaska side of the mountain will know what this means, but it was new to Adney and his horses. As we mentioned earlier, we're now going to tell you what happened further up the White Pass Trail, including the story of the 3,000 or so horses that went up that trail in 1897. If you want to avoid this, you can skip the remaining minute or so of this episode and pick up the story in our next one. Adney examined the trail. Tall, lanky horses were at constant risk of falling, but smaller pack horses and mules navigated the obstacles better. There are regular signs of dead horses— Either corpses, sometimes half-buried in black quagmire, the stench of rotting flesh, or in one case a pack saddle beside a cliff with broken bushes showing where the horse fell. The trail goes up and down over steep ridges with names like Porcupine Hill, usually with steep switchbacks and slippery stones that can be fatal to horses. Each obstacle quickly became infamous along the trail. Tents filled every flat bit of ground where you could rest. Parties that had been working for two weeks or only half a dozen miles along the trail. For a while, the trail followed the river and was full of bogs, essentially mud holes where the ground was so trampled it was the consistency of sludge. Adney watches as every horse that passed gets mired up to its hindquarters and extricated only with great difficulty. Four horses a day are dying now. Adney suspects the number will rise sharply if rain keeps falling on the mud bogs and more stampeders arrive. He expects that none of the horses who start on the trail will ever come out. Indeed, 
According to Alice Sear, a former historical interpreter for the National Park Service and the Alaskan cruise ships, and the great aunt of your narrators, by the way, around 3,000 horses ended up dead along the White Pass Trail that year, giving that part of the trail its name, Dead Horse Gulch. Even those that made it to the summit weren't safe. There was a grass there that was poisonous to horses, but the starving animals gobbled it anyway. By the end of September, a month after Adney came by, the trail was essentially closed. It was an endless mud bog at the bottom, and it was choked with the corpses of those 3,000 horses. Alice dug up a quote from Jack London from his book, The God of His Fathers. Quote, The horses died like mosquitoes in the first frost, and from Skagway to Bennett they rotted in heaps. They died at the rocks, they were poisoned at the summit, and they starved at the lakes. They fell off the trail, what there was of it, and they went through it. In the river they drowned under their loads or were smashed to pieces against the boulders. They snapped their legs in the crevices and broke their backs falling backwards with their packs. In the sloughs they sank from sight and were smothered in the slime, and they were disemboweled in the bogs where corduroy logs turned end up in the mud. Men shot them, worked them to death, and when they were gone went back to the beach and bought more. Some did not bother to shoot them, stripping the saddles off and the shoes and leaving them where they fell. Their hearts turned to stone, those that did not break, and they became beasts, the men on the dead horse trail. Adney even met some miners who claimed they'd seen a horse commit suicide by walking deliberately off the edge of Porcupine Hill. We've put some photos of the White Pass Trail on our website from the University of Washington collection. Adney decided at this point to return to town. He met a packer who offered to take his outfit and those of his partners over the Chilkoot Trail. And Adney, as you can imagine, decided that this had to be better than the White Pass Trail. When he finally got across the mountains to Bennett, B.C., and the head of navigation on the Yukon River, Adney looked back on the White Pass Trail. One party of men had killed 37 horses getting from Skagway to Bennett, and there were other groups with similar records. Buckskin Joe, on the other hand, had the last laugh on everyone who made fun of his outfit on the SS Islander. He packed, alone but with three horses, 2,400 pounds from Skagway to Bennett in just 18 days. Each night, even though he was exhausted himself, he put each horse's foot in a bucket of water, washed the mud off, and dried them. He washed their backs with salt water. His horses were still worth something when he sold them at Bennett. Here's what Adney wrote about it. Quote, The opening of the White Pass as a summer trail was not a blunder. It was a crime. When the British Yukon Company was advertising the White Pass Trail and booming its town site and railway proposition, the trail was not cut out beyond the summit of the pass. There was at that time no trail, and there has since been no trail, but something they have called a trail, marked by the dead bodies of 3,000 horses and by the shattered health and the shattered hopes and fortunes of scores, nay hundreds, of men. Join us for the next episode, where Adney will find out if the Chukut Trail really was easier than the horrors of the White Pass. If you like this episode, please tell a friend and rate us on Apple Podcasts. If you really like the episode, please go to our website, which also has links and maps about this episode, and make a donation. That's klondikegoldrush.org. Even a few bucks helps cover the costs of equipment and hosting. We didn't do this podcast to get rich, but, as an old miner might say, it sure would be nice to make enough to get our grub steak back. <laughs>